0: Hello, this is Coming to the Mat a podcast from the Melanesian Women Today Impact Service Series. Told through the lens of everyday, ordinary Pacific Island women, the Mat series seeks to break cultural barriers and invite listeners to hear real human stories of making a difference. The stories you will hear from this series balance diverse interests and weave together the story of courageous women who dedicate their lives to making a difference in their communities and country. Coming to the Mat series is a safe space that allows for women in the Pacific to use their voices. It also explores the integral aspects of women's lives all across the South Pacific and gives the listener a window into the many different issues women face through storytelling. We often think of it as an essential source of sustenance. The definition of food in a dictionary can define food as any substance that is or can be consumed by living organisms such as us, human beings, by eating in order to sustain our life. Other definition of food is uh, something to do or anything to do with uh, nutrition, or it's a nutritious substance that you and I, or animals, Um, eat or drink, or even plants can absorb to maintain life or growth. But have you ever, the question is, have you ever wondered how other cultures think about or people in other cultures think about food and their relationship with food the way you do or I do? So did you know that food, as we we know, or you and I do, is not always um, seen or treated the same way in many cultures around the world? Uh, indigenous people for instance view themselves as in nature as as one or part of an extended ecological family that share ancestry origins and they depend on each other that interdependency um, which is why they're focusing the focus instead on a broader community of life and then the local systems in these cultures Including things like harvesting of locally available, non-domesticated wildlife, like plants and animals for humans, for human consumption, for our, um, you know, consumption, are often referred to as traditional food. And in our case, for the sake of this episode on food and identity, which is what we're going to be talking about today, uh, we're going to refer to, to it as island kakai. Um, so all of which are part of the social-ecological um, system that is defined by how we use it or how we take care of it. So that's our stewardship of our local biodiversity um, as the source of food that we get. That so that it can that and so that comes with um, our knowledge. It embodies this knowledge and the relationship that we have, and that rep- uh, reciprocates um, that connection between man and nature or people and nature and create the possibility of, of, of the life that we have and by living within our biodiversity and our well-being. So in Melanesia, these local food systems inextricably cling with their Melanesian identity, their food security and the well-being that is representative of their cultural strength and source of cultural identity so that strength and resilience of Melanesian cultures and their capacity as well to observe new elements outside you know within just within the cultural repertoire continues to compel continues to uh, attract attentions especially for anthropologists who likes to study all of this or uh, ethnologists who like to study you know um, cultures and different cultures and the way that they live within their own society and the way that they behave. So it is perhaps one of the most, Melanesia is probably perhaps one of the most vibrating or vibrant living cultures, Melanesian cultures that is, it's perhaps one of the most vibrant living cultures that there is today and uniquely so um, in the history of human societies. And so when we talk about food we also can't leave out language, language, is part of that same element. So food and language are also part of that interdependent components of, of the way that we live within our cultures and our environment. So Melanesian cultures and, and have that component. And the remarkable part of this is the diversity of the dialects, the different languages that we speak and the languages that we you know we, we, we speak today and the language families. As we know in the Pacific we have the Oceanian language uh, family language. Um, language families. So not to mention that there there is a distinct and diversified local food system within the different uh, uh, countries in Melanesia that demonstrate that collective richness and the diversity and also that relatedness of each of the countries in Melanesia in some ways, uh, in some uh, form or shape, and that there is a very strong dynamic relationship between that biodiversity and local food. And in our case, our island kakai system, which are very rich and also uh, very different or it varies uh, throughout Melanesia. And so uh, when we 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 think of food, we think of language, we, you know, one of the countries that come to mind, obviously, in Melanesia is Papua New Guinea. So Papua New Guinea is known as the most linguistically diverse country in the world with nearly 850 languages. And then Vanuatu is uh, the world's dentist linguistic landscape, country in the world with as many as 145 languages spoken by a population around about uh, uh, 307,000 plus uh, people. So in most biologically, um, in, in, terms of, in terms of species, the richness of species in this in this part of the world and especially uh, when we when we look at endemic plants or so, in other words the endemism of of this region uh, particularly the eastern melanesian islands are uh, one of the most biologically important regions uh, on the planet so the melanesian region eastern melanesian region uh, in terms of the richness or species of richness and uh, endemic plants um, that includes the island nations of Vanuatu, the Solomon, the Solomon Islands, plus the island region of Papua New Guinea. So in today's episode, uh, this is going to be a two-part episode on food, and the first is I would like to look at or talk about food from two different lenses. The first part of the episode, I will focus on food and identity, uh, Melanesian Uh, area, obviously, and we're going to zero in on Vanuatu. And the second part of the episode, we look at culture, the cultural relationship between food, men, uh, women and men of Vanuatu. So in this part, uh, first part of the episode about food and identity uh, in the Pacific, particularly in the region, Melanesian region uh, of Vanuatu, uh, my guest for today will be Kirk Huffman. And uh, him and I will be uh, looking or talking about essentials of island kai or island food, where we will dive into the different and talk about the different aspects of food that is associated with our livelihood of the livelihood of people, in pertaining not just to the diet but also with their identity as Melanesian people, their spirituality of how how they you know this food that has considered a spiritual food and food that are closely associated with women and men, particularly in uh, ritual ceremonies. So Kirk, who is a longtime friend um, and guest of Coming to the Mat, was able to shed some light on how food is intimately linked to cultural identity and belongings, particularly in the Melani- Melani- Melanesian region of the Pacific, where he has uh, spent, or he had spent, over just over 18 years working as an Anthropologist and ethnologist in Vanuatu, particularly on the island of Malakula, which is the second biggest island in, in Vanuatu, and and uh, he stressed that the basis of the diet of the Pacific island people is actually deeply rooted in root crops. And so when we we're talking about root, root crops, we are obviously talking about land-based diet or land food, food that are grown um, in the ground, um, not so much. In the sea, although they are part of a huge big part of the diet of Pacific Island people. So, in terms of uh, land based diet, food from the land, and so other land based food or diet like wheat, grain, barley, and sweet corn, or maize and rice are not necessary or not uh, be- the basis of Pacific Island diet, for they are simply not part of Pacific or Melanesian identity or Vanuatu identity. So food like yams, taro, and manioc, tree crops such as uh, breadfruit, coconut, banana and tropical fruits along with, uh, you know, pigs, especially when they use pigs for ritual uh, ceremonies on special occasions have very rich relationship that links people uh, in the case of Melanesia with their identity and spirituality. Uh, we also uh, discuss how we will also discuss how some of the root crops, in particular, some cultures in Vanuatu, are closely associated with women and men during certain cultural rituals, such as the grade-taking um, rituals for women. And we uh, and also acknowledging as well that there is an epidemic that is now a real concern in the Pacific that's relating to the increase in um, NCD and at the same time stresses the importance of traditional Pacific Island diet um, that comparing to the Western diet is still very much um, superior or uh, um, outweighs the Western diets in many, many ways, and how the weaknesses of the traditional Pacific Island food diets are very small, in fact, and the strength um, a very big, uh, immense. So an aspect of traditional food um, that consists of methods of songs, that's something that you will hear us discuss about, that has been practiced or is practiced throughout the region in, in some of the cultures of Melanesia. Unfortunately, today, many Pacific Islanders have moved to a more Western diet um, consisting of fast food and processed food. And as a result, the incidence of both obesity and diabetes have soared in the Pacific. So some Pacific Islanders now rely mostly on imported foods or some Pacific Islands Uh, Particularly that are highly processed. This food's a highly processed food, and such as white flour, white sugar, uh, canned food, and fish, um, canned meat and fish. um, Sorry, margarine, things like margarine, uh, mayonnaise, and uh, carbonated beverage, uh, candies, cookies, and and breakfast cereals. So many locals would go and sell their fruits and vegetables in the on the market, and then turn around and purchase imported food. So that's something that we will be discussing today and have a little bit more depth of understanding maybe you know suggest some some ideas that could uh, help us to move ourselves forward into a much healthier path so about 80 to 90% of the food that are now imported um, you know things like rice, who's becoming a, that's an example that's become a staple food in, in some households today that you find throughout the Pacific instead of uh, you know the food that have been grown uh, locally, and so uh, the fact that you know today if you purchase imported food uh, and sadly enough it's it's seen as a status or a simple status symbol. Um, So that's also another question that we have to ask ourselves. Um, How do we maintain that balance? Um, Where do we find that balance? So that's going to be a discussion for today. It's a two-part episode on food. The first part will look at food and identity, and the second part will look at the cultural relationship between food and women and men of Vanuatu. So that will be our segment um, for today on Coming to the Mat. I hope you can stick around with me on Coming to the Mat with my guest. Our guest today, welcome him on the mat, is Mr. Kirk Hefman. So welcome and Coming to the Mat. Your host for today is Dr. Mere Tarisovic.
1: One of the most basic things to, to bear in mind about food in the Pacific, particularly in Melanesia, is that Melanesians and uh, Pacific Islanders are people that are brought up... The basis of their diet is... I'm talking about the land diet, not necessarily so much the uh, diet from the sea or the reef, but I'm talking about uh, 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 food from the land. And the interesting thing and the important thing about the Pacific and Melanesia is that they're root crop people. Mm. They're not people or cultures that were brought up on wheat or grains or rice. That's not part of uh, Pacific or Melanesian identity. Mm. Uh, Wheat, and barley, grains and things like that, and rice and various things like that, and corn, uh, uh, like maize, uh, um, sweet corn, they're not part of a Pacific identity. They're not part of a Melanesian identity. Uh, the foods that are part of a Pacific identity or a Melanesian identity are uh, yam, taro, manioc, and that's been the basis of, uh, and, and, other, and other foods like that. Uh, and that's been the basis of Melanesian and Pacific identity, for centuries and centuries and centuries. And when you have populations that grow up on that kind of uh, food as a foundation, their bodies adapt to it, and they adapt to it well. So when you get other types of food being pushed into the Pacific or Melanesia from the outside world, foods like rice or wheat, or some bread, yeah, Mm. that doesn't go down well with Melanesian or Pacific populations because from the point of view of Pacific or Melanesian bodies, their bodies are not adjusted to it. It's actually dangerous for them. Mm. Uh, and this is what, one of the many reasons why you've got increasing rates of obesity and diabetes type 2 in the Pacific, because all these new kinds of foods are being forced onto Pacific Islanders, and sometimes the Pacific Islanders are welcoming those kinds of foods uh, uh, cheerfully. Mm. Uh, and they're not foods that are suited for them. So let me just start with a thing. So something to do with promoting food for women. Okay, in Vanuatu, one of the important root crops that's very closely associated with women is taro. In many of the cultures in Vanuatu, not all of them, Mm -hmm. taro is looked after or associated with women. Yam is looked after and associated with men. Mm -hmm. Um, So let me just start here with a a little recording that I did nearly 50 years ago in the mountains in southern Malakula. And this is a song uh, sung by men mm. during a ritual for women, and it's a song in praise of taro. Mm. So let me just play this. It starts off lele or le, le, which means le, le, that in their language it means this is something to do with women. Mm-hmm. And then they go and sing and wambilis, number This is they're singing about the taro food that they will have after the ceremony, and the song and the the small uh, the small drum beating that they're doing. It's a group of men for a ritual where they're taking out the um, upper right tooth of a young girl doing uh, grade-taking rituals for women. Mm-hmm. In, because, of the, uh, uh, because that's part of one of the grade-taking rituals which enables a woman in that area, it's the female equivalent of circumcision amongst the men. Mm-hmm. Uh, at a certain age, the women have to have their upper right front tooth taken out uh, for one of the grades in the women's graded society mm-hmm. so that they can then become mothers. So, this Mm -hmm. is a song sung by men for a women's ritual, the song in praise of Taro, Mm. recorded nearly 50 years ago. I did this. Mm-hmm. The band uh, guy at the end of it means we're going to dance until daylight mm-hmm. after that because they're so excited about the big tarot lap-lap that they're going to have after the rituals. Huh? Um, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's a song in praise of tarot
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, for women's rituals. And so, all so foods in Melanesia mm-hmm. have songs associated with them. Right. There's songs for yams, there's songs for taro there's songs for manioc there's songs for everybody something you got sing sing blame hmm. you
0: know? so that's um specifically to that part of Malakula. um and you were saying about the woman's it's like a ritual that' she, um becoming is is it um becoming of a, a woman
1: yes uh without this particular. Ritual. I mean, that song was being done for this particular ritual where the upper right front tooth of the woman is taken out. It enables her to have children, it says, mm-hmm. in their culture.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, you have to realize that those people singing that song, they weren't, they're were they not, when I was recording, they're not Christian. Mm-hmm. They're following their traditional religions, as, as they've mm-hmm. been doing normally for many centuries, mm-hmm. uh, and following their traditional beliefs. And in the same way that uh, to make uh, a boy become a man... They ha- he has to go through initiation and then mm-hmm. uh, uh, incision, be you may tell him say circumcise in that area. Uh, the, uh, women have to go through a similar thing uh, where they take out the upper tooth of the woman, upper front tooth right front tooth, so that, they, that enables her then to become a woman. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: so why, why, why the men focuses on yam and the women on tara then specifically from from that area. Uh,
1: because taro is associated with women. Right. Taro is the woman's crop in that area. Okay. Although the uh, the men uh, have links with the taro, it's taro is the woman's thing. Mm-hmm. Yam is the men's thing. Mm-hmm. In other cultures in Vanuatu, for example, in some areas, for example, North and South Pentecost, mm-hmm. those are really important yam cultures. Huh?
2: Mm-hmm. In
1: those areas, yams are men and men are yams. Mm-hmm. In South Pentecost, the land dive ritual, the land dive ritual itself, Nangol, mm-hmm. that's actually a ritual for yams. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, the, uh, and at uh, one level of analysis, the actual annual performance of the land dive rituals is traditionally uh, part of the ancient traditional religion. Is considered essential for the fertility of yams. It's a ritual for of thanks for past good yam harvests, and it's a ritual prayer for future good of yam harvests. Mm. And if the ritual doesn't go well, they fear that uh, uh, the, the harvest will be bad. If there's an accident or something like that, they fear that. Uh, so at one level of analysis, the land I ritual is not for tourists. Mm. <laughs> tourists, I suppose, well, you know, now everybody thinks it's for tourists. But traditionally, the stampa, mm-hmm. basis of the ritual, is four yams. It's mm-hmm. done during a critical stage during the, 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 the yam cycle,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, uh, but uh, it's, four, it's four yams. Uh, and there's all sorts of symbolism in the tower. Every single bit of the tower has a particular name
2: mm-hmm. and
1: a particular function and a particular meaning
2: mm-hmm.
1: at a physical and at a spiritual level and even the person who dives mm-hmm. represents a certain spiritual thing that's linked to fertility. Mm-hmm. And it's all to do with fertility of yams, mm-hmm. but because yams and men or humans are linked together, mm-hmm. it's also a ritual for fertility of humans.
0: Right. So it's yeah. it's almost like the, the way that the Pacific Islanders or even want to as we we specifically talking about them here, it's almost like that living within interchangeable or interconnected of land and food, in um, everything that whole cosmos of living. So, yes. oh, why is yes. there's, yeah. no,
1: there's there's no sort of uh, there's no sort of boundary between the two.
0: There's mm-hmm.
1: actually a type of ritual up in Ambram Mm -hmm. Uh, I think they haven't done it for years now I think it's called Yang Yang, where at the time when the yam harvest comes out the best yams are chosen Mm -hmm. uh, and linked with the healthiest young men Mm -hmm. and they come out, each man comes out holding a giant yam and the yam is decorated like a man with the same face paints and everything Mm -hmm. like that Mm -hmm. Uh, and and each young uh, man will come out holding the yam that's associated with him and they dance mm-hmm. as a special ritual associated with it
2: okay. I think
1: the ritual is called yang yang mm.
2: yeah.
1: it's really it's really important stuff I mean there's so many things that in so many ways mm. uh, Melanesians or say Vanuatu uh, are, are way ahead of the modern world mm. in many aspects of traditional agriculture
2: right. because
1: there are cultures in Vanuatu who traditionally have specialists who will for example sing to yams during the growth period mm-hmm. to make them grow better, mm-hmm. you know, and they've been doing this for centuries.
2: Mm-hmm. They've
1: been doing. It's only now
2: mm-hmm.
1: that scientists in the modern world are realizing that these kinds of plants react to vibrations.
2: Mm-hmm. React
1: to vibrations, and so uh, the fact that if you're not doing the thing, if you're not singing to your yams in the proper way, mm-hmm. and then you find that the yams don't grow so well. Now the scientists will say, ah, it's because the vibration's not getting these vibrations, or whatever it is. But no. Nivanuatu, where they have the grandparents, everybody, mm. would know this, you know. The new today generation, the eyes-down mm. uh, yeah, Facebook uh, uh, generation, <laughs> might, might not might not know it. But the thing is, it it's may true. be, um, look, even Prince Charles from the British royal family, mm. he was taught by a uh, an early... Uh, a uh, specialist traveller who spent a long time living with the uh, Bushmen of the Kalahari Desert, who are mm-hmm. one of the oldest cultures in the world. There mm-hmm. uh, 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 was a chap called uh, Lawrence van der Post, who uh, I met years ago, I think in 19, uh, 1969. A mm-hmm. uh, very interesting chap. He taught Prince Charles the, the importance, and he. And Lars der Post was taught this from the Bushmen of the Kalahari, mm-hmm. how it was very important to sing over certain parts in the desert, of the mm-hmm. Kalahari Desert, mm-hmm. where it was thought that certain plants would be growing underneath the soil that they might need if there were rains and the plants would grow. You'd get special people who would come and they would uh, crouch down over the spot in the desert where the, the seeds of the plants were and would sing to them mm-hmm. and would sing to them. But the vibrations mm-hmm. at a particular vibration level, at a particular pitch and at a particular speed, mm-hmm. done regularly, can actually help the seeds or whatever to, ger- to germinate and mm-hmm. to grow. And this is what people in some areas, not every culture in Vanuatu had this, but mm-hmm. some cultures had this, where they had people who sing DMs, mm-hmm. people who sing to all sorts of crops. You've got people who do all sorts of things for, mm-hmm. for crops to make them grow their certain times of the year mm-hmm. or, or phases of the moon that are the best right. time to plant things right. and stuff like that right. um and this is something that traditionally people mm-hmm. in vanuatu were brought up with now it's all being forgotten unfortunately because uh uh yeah uh, the, the, these things aren't necessarily respected by the by the younger generations in many areas of vanuatu in some areas they're still respected and they're still mm-hmm. known about um but if if people are saying oh the food that we grow in our gardens isn't as good as it used to be,
2: mm-hmm. Very
1: enough. Blogger there are now, Paul Blogg, are Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. It's because if one's forgotten the proper ways, traditional ways to promote the good types of agriculture, mm-hmm. the ways to promote the growth of your crops, uh, then uh, unfortunately the missionaries have actually sort of almost prohibited a
2: mm-hmm. lot of this
1: stuff, particularly on Tanna. Mm-hmm. They tried to stamp it out, uh, and so actually, possibly resulted in the, the the downgrading of the quality of some of the crops in parts of uh, in mm-hmm. parts of Vanuatu.
2: Mm-hmm. I,
1: I really respect a lot of this stuff because I was brought up in the 1950s in the west of England and farm where we raised all our own food, mm-hmm. um, and we had we had to learn to the the old traditional ways from that area. Mm-hmm. to actually grow the food to the best capacity. We raised all our own food. We weren't allowed to have electricity. We weren't allowed to have television. My parents wanted all of us, my brothers and sisters, to grow up in a completely natural way to know what was essential in life. And then, you know, afterwards we'd be able to say, oh, you know, we don't have to bother with that because that's just a luxury, et cetera, et cetera. We, wanted, we were taught to learn the basics.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So we were taught there are special ways, there are special times to plant. Right. particular types of things.
2: Mm-hmm. There's
1: special things that need to be done. we didn't know about singing for yams because uh, there are no yams in England in
0: those right. days. <laughs> right. Yeah. So it, it's fascinating to me that um naturally things that we grow in the ground, um, whether you know we put a seed in the ground or we um plant in whatever you know different types of ways of planting it's um you still have to take care of it and so this uh idea that we have to go to the store and buy uh, taro in the store island cabbage in the store um, it almost um just seems very unnatural in a sense like once you do that You're breaking away those rituals that have been in place for millennials, you know, time immemorials, I guess I should say. So how do we get people to realize that the local food, the, you know, because it takes, you know, when you take really good care about something, then the end product of it is supposed to be good for you instead of just going and finding something that you don't know where it comes from. So what are some of the things that we could encourage local, um, you know, civic islanders to to eat from the garden, um, things that they, they tend to and understand what they're eating and the, Spiritual aspects of this food, maybe, and how they're connected to those, the food or island kakai or, you know, crops that we have. How do we get Uh, that across?
1: Yes, I don't know. I mean, sometimes a store, if you're stuck in Vila, Mm -hmm. uh, if you have, for example, the misfortune to be stuck in Vila, you might have to get your food from a store if you don't have any gardens yourself Mm -hmm. or if your family can't send you kakai. Um, But, uh, the thing is with food, it's a, I'll just give you a story about um, uh, some years ago we had um, uh, an elderly uh, chief from Vanuatu come to stay with us. We have a lot of people from the Pacific come and stay with us here. And mm-hmm. this elderly chief was, was coming to stay with us. And this was some years ago, maybe uh, 10, 15 years ago. And uh, he, he asked, uh, uh, okay, uh after a while, he sort of said, "Well, well, well oh oh guy guy, yeah, we're now garden blow white man," you know because he saw everybody eating, and he's away in their gardens. Mm. So I took him down to a Woolworths supermarket in Bondi Junction, mm. and I showed him uh, the store with uh, the aisles in the store, and I said, "Hey, man now, garden-blow white man." And he said, "Te, yeah." <laughs> and then I showed him the aisles with all the tin foods, mm. and he said, "Ah, yes, something in me sadly. Me look finish, yeah, something yeah. Kai blood dead yeah, <laughs> oh, oh sorry. dead kai kai mm-hmm. dead kai kai mm. so i said I said to him afterwards, I said, well, what do you mean is that that uh, dead kai kai is that, uh, dead is that uh, uh food that's already dead, or is it food that uh, uh or, or whatever, and he said, no. no, he said there's food that's already dead, and if you eat it, you die. <laughs> <laughs> right. yeah, 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 so I mean, he was pushing a point there. he was mm-hmm. exaggerating a little bit, but he said, uh, uh, yes, dead kai, kai. yeah
2: um,
1: look, sometimes that sort of food is essential. I mean, you've got more and right. more people being packed into towns and settlements mm-hmm. now, so they can't necessarily all have gardens. Mm-hmm. But if you want to be really healthy, the uh, thing is, the way that Pacific Island peoples and cultures have moved out into the Pacific. Mm. over many, many generations is produced a body type and an hereditary digestive system type mm. that, how do we say, can possibly exaggerate what some of the health specialists call the the, the flight and fright syndrome. Oh. Uh, it's, you've got, okay. because uh, so much of uh, Pacific Island history has mm-hmm. been that of voyaging, mm-hmm. you know, going mm-hmm. further and further out into the Pacific, Mm-hmm. Um, um over many, many centuries, the body type that's been selected is one that enables the body to store fats mm-hmm. uh, easily because there may be a famine, either because you know you're on a canoe that goes adrift mm-hmm. or you're in an island that has regular cyclones or there's earthquakes or volcanoes mm-hmm. or or whatever. And so the human types that have been selected for survival are those who can store fats at times of emergency.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, unfortunately, what happens when there's no emergency, if you're suddenly faced with easy kai-kai, like food from a store, mm-hmm. and kai-kai of the wrong kind, the body still reacts it still stores the fats very easily, very mm-hmm. quickly. So they, they, they get fatter more quickly, Mm-hmm. than, say, for example, people in Europe uh, or some other parts of the world that haven't been through those same sort of a, um, Pacific travel processes over many, many centuries. Mm-hmm. So it's much easier for Pacific Islanders of all types to get fat very quickly
2: mm-hmm. if,
1: they, if they leave a, a, an active lifestyle. And mm-hmm. life, active lifestyle is one of the important things. If you have a job sitting at a desk... Mm-hmm. you know that that's not a healthy lifestyle for pacific islanders right. mm-hmm.
2: um
1: uh yeah, it's called the the flight and fright the fright and flight syndrome i am
2: mm-hmm. not exactly
1: sure why it's got that name but uh,
2: mm-hmm. this is what
1: happens and the thing is what it's it's a real problem for pacific islanders because look in 2016 mm-hmm. the cia i don't know why they were interested in the cia were doing a study Mm-hmm. Uh, of various things. And, and they, in a, report, in a 2016 report, the CIA said that all 10 of the world's most obese countries by the adult prevalence rate of, da- of obesity were Pacific Island nations, mm-hmm. according to the CIA World Factbook.
2: Mm-hmm. <laughs>
1: I don't know why the CIA were interested in that.
2: Mm-hmm. But yeah,
1: and I think of all of those, Nauru was the worst? Huh? Mm-hmm. Fat, fat Peter Marcos, and double fat, fat, you know. Um, and mm-hmm. the thing is, as soon as you... Increase your, your your weight like that. You're much much more susceptible to diabetes. You change from a traditional island mm-hmm. kai kai based diet to a, a Western type lifestyle and a Western type diet.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah 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 yeah. yeah the, 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 the 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 danger of catching sick blood sugar diabetes type two mm-hmm. ramps up rapidly, really rapidly. It's really dangerous. Huh? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so what's happening is the new types of food, the new types of food, uh, being brought into the Pacific and accepted by smilingly by many Pacific Islanders, uh, is actually is actually making them sick and 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 killing many of them off. It's a sort of a mm-hmm. form of benign genocide, I actually said, I think, in one interview. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yet the companies sending this food, like white rice and things like that, and mm-hmm. lamb flaps, you know, mm-hmm. or oh, lamb flap here yeah, away, no good way, no good, I'll get there. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, you know, I mean, no, the countries sending lamb flap re- into Pacific Islanders, you know, are, are, they don't necessarily eat lamb flaps themselves. I mean, New Zealand and Australia are sending lap, lamb flaps to people in the highlands of PNG or all around the Pacific. Man, oli caca, oli caca something new. They like them. Very mm. sweet. Got Ooh, nice. Nice, very nice. But yeah. it's not healthy at all. Huh? Yeah.
0: Yeah. So, you know, I was, I was thinking of um, now that we have a lot of the seasonal workers working in Australia and New Zealand, um, that again, it's like a shock in the system. Of um, introducing to different kinds of food, um, and we have some cases where some of them have died. Um, and whatever the case may be, but I, you know, that's another thing that it seems to be a worry. Like, how do we educate um, those who are going into those fields and what kind of food to eat and maybe uh, ways to cook certain food like you know if they have potatoes in new zealand maybe or spinach eating spinach and carrots instead of eating big mac and whatever else and a lot of those sort of diets um diet sorters, i should say those are very worrying um, ways of introductions to food for pacific islanders so what are some of the you know maybe some of the things that before they go into go on plane and taking off and going to New Zealand and Australia, what are some of the things that can be done about that? Because it is uh, it is a bother.
1: Yeah, it is. Uh, and many of the young people going for fruit picking uh, or for seasonal labour work, or, you know, um, will have been grown up on healthy diets in the villages, mm. and then they're sent overseas to work hard. Uh, uh, maybe you're on a diet that's not too healthy for them. Um, so, but if they're going to cook for themselves, if they're going to, for example, if they're going to so use potatoes, mm. the important thing is is to keep the skin on the potatoes. You know, a lot mm. of things, a lot of the kinds of foods that can be unhealthy if used the wrong way can actually be healthy if used the right way. Like, for mm. example, potatoes. Right. Like people that make fish and chips. Fish and mm. chips, the chips... Usually have they're often potatoes that have been skinned, mm-hmm. but the real health value of a potato is in the skin.
2: Right.
1: And it's like, for example, with yam, there's a lot of good nutritional value in in yam, mm-hmm. but there's special things in the skin of yams that are thought, even by scientists now,
2: mm-hmm. to be
1: very effective against cancer. Mm. And there's some interesting studies that have been done. Uh, Oh, my gosh, I think it was uh, uh, just about five years ago Mm
2: -hmm.
1: on on yams. And they found that uh, if you actually cook a yam, look, I'm talking about cooking it in the European way. You sort of boil a yam Mm -hmm. and stuff like that. You know, yeah, 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 yeah. But they found that the the yam cooking water that's left over, Mm -hmm. this is in a series of experiments uh, done in uh, England about five or six years ago, they found that the water left over from cooking yams is incredibly healthy if you drink it.
2: Mm. It
1: cuts down on body fats,
2: mm-hmm. and
1: if you have high cholesterol, it cuts the high cholesterol down.
2: Mm. Yeah,
1: yeah. So, so there's all there's all sorts of things. I mean, yeah, the skin of yams, mm. yams uh, are incredibly healthy. Oh, uh, taro, mm-hmm. taro is always. Really fantastically healthy. Mm. If there's a way that they can actually cook, uh, you can actually, I think seasonal laborers might even be able to ask. It, in a way, it might even be worthwhile
2: mm-hmm.
1: asking the Vanuatu government or relevant departments within the government if they can give food briefings to these people before they leave right. uh, Vanuatu to go and work.
0: Right.
1: And then to ask the coordinating institutions mm. in New Zealand and Australia to try and give seasonal workers from Vanuatu or Melanesia mm-hmm. access to proper foods so that they can cook them in their way, mm-hmm. if they can get access to yam or taro or or whatever. Mm-hmm.
2: Uh,
1: forget them Maggie noodles and all that sort of stuff, because yeah. that's really Maggie but, noodles or whatever, those kind of noodles are too high in salt, too high right. in sugars, etc., etc. Right. But taro, mm-hmm. look, uh, uh, about a decade ago, about... 2010, I, mm. Vincent Lebeau has been doing a lot of studies to, with the Agriculture Department in Tagabay
2: mm.
1: on various types of food, came out with some stuff on water taro, mm. particularly water taro. And he mm. said the water taro is actually one of the most nutritious foods in the whole world. It's got an incredible amount of stuff in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: He, said, he actually said it's best kai kai below world. Yeah. actually somewhere. Yeah. I think I've actually got a, a headline mm-hmm. from... Uh, let me just you... Water taro, the mm-hmm. best nutritional food in the world.
2: Did it to independent newspaper,
1: 20th uh, 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 February 2010. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. Number yeah. one kai blow world, huh? Yeah. Taro, so. I mean, number one drink blow world. <laughs> taro, water taro. Yeah. He said, uh, Vincent Lebeau was saying that. Uh, yeah, taro is incredibly mm. nutritious, huh? Right.
0: Very, right. very
1: good. But water taro yeah. of the different types of taro, water taro is the best, the mm. one that has the most stuff, huh? There's all these the thing is, uh boom boo boo, you mean all been savvy or kind of something there. Yes. All you know is Scientific side, but all you savvy say, I guess kinda yeah now it'd be good. You look the people from mountain villages in southern Malakula,
2: mm. they're
1: incredibly fit. Mm. You know, they're climbing mountains all the time and stuff mm. like that. Mm-hmm. yes yes and it, it, yeah
0: and taro is uh, one of those uh, you know taro talo, um it's one of those it's a uh, food that is basically when you think of the Pacific, you think of that's the first food most people think about the crops the taro because it's you know some some parts of the uh, you know in the Pacific they use the leaves as well. Um, yeah, 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 to yeah.
1: Cook. Yeah, yeah. There's all sorts of things. Mm. I mean, there's so many things. Look, there was a survey done, again about 11 years ago, in which mm. what about edible plant species around the world? Right. A group of international people working on this, and they found that there are more than 50,000 edible plant species in the world.
2: Mm.
1: But they say one of the conclusions of their report is, unfortunately, global food supplies rely on just 15 crop plants out of this 50,000. Mm-hmm. This is led by rice, maize, yeah. that's sweet corn, and yeah. wheat. So mm-hmm. what's happening is the modern business world right. is relying on promoting just an incredibly small amount of basic foods mm-hmm. out of 50,000 other edible plant things mm-hmm. that they're ignoring.
0: Yeah. You know? Yeah. And that is, that, that is very, very true. You know, like... Well, you know, we're talking about Melanesia, and it's obviously one of the most diverse in terms of diversity in food system. And as you had alluded to, that it's, you know, it's declining as the lifestyle changes, and then people depend more and less on subsistence farming to provide for the food. and So then we end up depending more on foods that are imported in store, and uh, yeah. because it's yeah. quicker to prepare and eat and then it's becoming popular, but then at the same time, this food like rice and wheat, as you were talking about uh I use more than our melanesian diet, so there's traditional yeah. foods that have been neglected, they're actually very yeah. delicious uh the flavors yeah. and they have a lot of health values and sometimes yeah. it almost seems to me that they're not appreciated you know i mean we can't <clears throat> we only yeah. take them out when we do a wedding ceremony. Or, yes, you know, yes. 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 Yeah. As the diets and lifestyles have changed, there's been, you know, increase of related overweight disease such as diabetes, as you had yeah, said, yeah. And, and, and of course yeah. because of the low um, micronutrition, that, like vitamin D, I'm sorry, vitamin A, uh, deficiency uh, because of important foods that do not provide the very high nutritional value that like local yeah. foods do. Yeah. 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 So yeah. 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 The, mm.
1: Local foods—you actually you can actually get a wide variety mm. of stuff. It's not just you. Not just yam, lap, lap of yam, and a bit of a bit of uh, you know wing blow fowl inside there mm. or something like that. You've got, mm. There's all sorts of things you can do with it. But mm. all these studies now—I mean, the thing that surprises me
2: mm-hmm. is that
1: there's all these recent studies that have been done, just showing how bad the modern diets can be.
2: Right. And right.
1: basically, not too many people are doing about it. I mean, there's a 2019 study. Mm-hmm. That came out as a part of the Global Burden of Disease study by the Institute mm-hmm. of Health Metrics and Evaluation in in Seattle,
2: mm-hmm. and it was
1: published in 2019 in the British medical journal The Lancet.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And basically, they just said mm-hmm. basic headline is bad diets are killing more people globally than mm-hmm. tobacco. <laughs> wow. Yeah, and it's it's this horrific, you know, fast food, huh? mm-hmm. Fast kai kai. And yeah. they're, saying, they're saying another thing that came out at around the same time
2: mm-hmm.
1: is that the Western diet is now killing more people than smoking and high blood pressure. Yes, study
2: that's suggests?
1: very true. Yeah. You said it, You may all fast kai kai Yeah. But the thing is, look, I'm, I'm not saying that rice itself is a bad thing. Mm-hmm. There are cultures and peoples who's, who've been basing their lives and cultures on rice for thousands of years, like mm-hmm. in Asia. Mm. They're rice peoples. They base mm. and they've got lots of different types of rice. Right. Unfortunately the kind of rice that's being exported into the Pacific
2: mm. is
1: the cleaned white rice that's rubbish, it's just like eating air and sugar.
2: Right. You know. Right. Because
1: rice rice to be nutritious mm. you need the skin of the rice on it. Right. That's you know.
2: True.
1: And white rice is the skin has been taken off. Yeah. Uh, and so all the nutritional value has been taken away. So basically what you're eating
2: mm.
1: is sort of like <laughs> White air like a cloud with, mm. with, with sugar in it, and unfortunately, the kind of rice that's being sold in the stores I mean, it actually promotes diabetes type two, sick mm. sugar. You know, sorry, tell them, but, yeah. You know, I
0: like eating rice every now and then, but mm. you know, yeah. So we eat them uh, sparingly, did, not all the time, not every yeah, single not day. All, yeah, mm. not all the time.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, there's, there's all sorts of things that can be done. Mm-hmm. Um, water taro. But there's also, there's also, what's always interesting to me is also sort of, for example, well, look, there's a, another another type of thing is the problem with all these fast food type things that are being promoted
2: mm-hmm. by
1: all the big companies and all the big aid agencies, you know, mm-hmm. rice, uh, sweet corn, mm-hmm. um, uh, maize or wheat. Now, what the, what actually comes with it you're getting the genetically modified varieties. Right. And there's still there's still problems, possible problems with genetically modified food. We don't know what the effects are going to be several mm. generations down the line mm. with all this stuff. So
0: let's, you know? let's talk about, um, you know, we've talked about the, all the negative side of imported food, Um, that we've we've taken as part of, like, especially if you're living in town. Let's talk about the um, aspects of the significant burden on family in terms of budget. You know, as we live in town, um, in almost all the small island countries, uh, people become more dependent on import food and less production and marketing of traditional food. I mean, we're starting to see a change, especially during um, the borders have been closed down. And now there's more of that awareness of, you know, turning back to local traditional food. But let's uh, talk about how it's become a burden for families to spend a lot of money on buying food, even imported food, but at the same time, there are foods, a local food that families in town would, Find it very expensive. I mean, how do you make sense of that?
1: Oh my gosh, yeah, it's really hard. Um, uh, I think that uh, I think all the families uh, in in the towns should spend as much time as possible in the local markets and get the stuff from the women who are selling, bringing the stuff from their gardens. It's like mm-hmm. the market in Vila mm-hmm. and, uh, and and everything, you know. I mean, you've got the markets there, you've got people on the outskirts of the capital growing food, mm-hmm. uh, and that's, you know, unless you can get people back in your island to send mm-hmm. you food and things like that, I mean, yams travel quite well, but mm-hmm. they're very expensive to send by plane, I'll tell you. I had to do that sometime to send some, some yeah. traditional yams from yeah. island to island, and because yams are so heavy, mm-hmm. you know, and I'm talking about proper yams, I'm talking about yams that are two meters long, mm-hmm. you know not not these not these small ones that you see in the stores and things like that these mm-hmm. are ritual yams that are grown specially yams that have been sung to mm-hmm. that's the thing i mean mm-hmm. in the 70s and 80s you still had people who were in that um, there's one particular culture i'm talking about who were were singing to yams they had special yam or Clever yam, yeah,
2: mm. who was
1: singing to the yams and stuff during the growth planting and growth cycle. Mm-hmm. And these yams were coming out. They were fantastic. They were two meters long. You know, my right. gosh, and heavy as a man. Right. Heavy as a man, you know, some mm. of them. Huh? You know, a bit expensive to send by plane. Better to send those by ship. Yeah. Um, but you can get stuff, you get smaller yams and smaller mm-hmm. towers and things like that from, from the village markets. And mm-hmm. other things from the stores. I mean, look. Look, I'm not saying avoid the avoid the stores. I mean, sometimes you have to get stuff from the stores. Right. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. sometimes the rubbish kai kai is the cheapest.
2: Yeah. Uh, but
1: yeah. unfortunately, also that's the most uh, that's the most uh, 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 dangerous. Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting if you go back to uh, the, the genetically modified stuff
2: mm-hmm. because you get
1: all these genetically modified things in these new store things, right. and of course the big companies like Monsanto and whoever that were promoting genetically modified stuff around the world, mm. uh, you know, trying to force people to use it and things like that. Mm. Um, they were saying, oh, no problems at all and all that sort of stuff, but actually I've got sitting here in front of me an article from <laughs> a 2010 mm. uh, thing from, uh, asking, you know, where can you get genetically modified free food these days? I like mm. has food no gen- that's not genetically modified in any way. Right. And how about the staff cafe? at Monsanto's British headquarters, where the catering firm Granada Food Services has reportedly taken all the genetically modified food products off the menu because oh. of customer concerns. <laughs> Pointing yes. out that this was a decision taken by the caterer, Tony Coombs, Monsanto's director of corporate affairs, told Associated Press, mm. it has nothing to do with us, really. <laughs> it has. Mm. Yeah, even the people in the in the, in the Monsanto Café. Right. In the British headquarters, wouldn't eat, wouldn't eat wouldn't genetically eat modified food. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. So there, there are, there are concerns, and there's mm. still concerns. It doesn't matter mm. what the big companies or the big governments say. Oh, there are no concerns. That's all just, mm. you know. I mean, for decades, right. for decades, these big companies and 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 big governments have sort of. Uh, either not known the truth or tried to hide the truth about certain uh, the downside of certain mm. of certain things mm. not just genetically modified stuff but all sorts of other things in the process look in 1999 there was a bombshell of a book that was published mm. about about food and what the chemi- the additives in food that's damaging people around the world mm. and the book was written by a scientific a journalist called Deborah Cadbury, mm. and was called Altering Eden, The Feminization of Nature.
2: Mm.
1: And it was a book about all the chemical additives in food but yeah. uh, mm-hmm. uh, really damaging. And I'll just quickly read you a bit from the the inner bit of the book there. Scientists around, this is 1999,
2: mm-hmm. but
1: the book, uh, they tried to keep it out of the bookshops. I mean, mm.
2: uh, it's
1: because it's such a shocking book. uh, uh uh, people were in public were not too, a bit too scared to read it. I think scientists around the world are finding alarming changes in human reproduction and health. Mm. There is strong evidence that sperm counts have fallen dramatically. Mm. Testicular prostrate and breast cancer are on the rise. Different animal species are even showing signs of feminization or changing sex. The males actually producing eggs like females. According to science, scientific evidence, compiled worldwide, the prime suspect in these worrying findings is the increased exposure to chemicals Mm
2: -hmm. that can
1: mimic the female hormone estrogen Um. and other hormones. Indeed, man-made chemicals like DDT, PCB, and other hormone disruptors have become soaked into Mm -hmm. our environment from the use in countless modern products. Yeah. From plastics to pesticides. Yeah. Only now is the full impact of their extensive use mm-hmm. coming to light. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Well, um, and to top it with that, um, I'm just I'm reading it from here from the Guardian today, um, dated today, the 13th of here in the United States on Thursday. New study finds alarming levels of forever chemicals. If you know what the forever chemicals are. In the U.S., uh, mother's breast milk. So they're finding that yeah, more toxic chemicals known as PFAS found in all 50 sample tested at levels nearly 2,000 times what is considered saved in drinking water.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's horrific. It's mm-hmm. horrific. Mm-hmm. I mean, no wonder the the coronavirus or whatever it is has had such an effect on the United States because this, the levels of unhealthiness are incredibly mm-hmm. high over there, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. And coronavirus targets targets people with that are unhealthy, that mm-hmm. have damaged immune systems, right, yeah. that have sick blood sugar,
2: and, mm-hmm. and,
1: and and all sorts of things like that. Yeah. And unfortunately, in the United States, they've had five, four, the four generations, five mm-hmm. generations, nearly five of people being subjected to incredibly high levels of all these poisonous chemicals.
2: Right. You know, And
1: they're still yeah. walking around, and they think yeah. they're alive. Yeah. And, <laughs> so they all get there.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: and, but, uh, yeah, no, it's really
0: scary. Right. It's and, really scary here, Mary. Mm-hmm. And that's yeah. the message which we're trying to drive here through this discussion, that um, we need to be made aware of. Like, a lot of this imported food and not what we think they are and so we have what it's naturally uh you know that we know like the saying of you shouldn't eat what your grandmother doesn't eat you know if yeah. it's not on your yeah. grandmother's plate and you've never seen yeah. your grandmother yeah. eat that kind of thing yeah. then something's wrong yeah. when you're yeah. trying to yeah. eat that thing so yeah. it is yeah, yeah. something that we have to be aware of and how do we because yeah. this this kind of discussions that it's good And I'm glad that we've talked about all of this in terms of how it relates to a culture, and you have wonderfully displayed that with the traditional songs from Anukuler pertaining to the women's ritual, uh, becoming a a woman. Um, And so that also gives um, that you know highlight the relationship that we have as Pacific Island people, Ni-Vanuatu, Melanesians, how we have this connection to our biodiversity way of looking at food and the relationship with food and our culture our beliefs and how we live and so if we don't have relationship with a big mac or mcdonald which it's so you know that's something that you just pull out of midair, then something is not right and it's not healthy for us so the more we talk about this kind of uh things it helps to get those wheels turning for the Pacific Island people and so that we can be healthy um, in understanding the things that we put in our mouth may be not optimal health choices for what's to come. So what are some other implications of uh, ways that um, maybe... And even watch a person who's listening to this or a Pacific Island person who's listening to this, what are some of the things that they might think about when they, you know, choosing between eating a plate of yam versus a piling up of rice and drinking uh, a nice fussy drink on the side or what do you call it, pop, um, Coca-Cola? Yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah, okay, well, I was saying, I think that... Uh, for those in the Pacific who are stuck in towns mm-hmm. or living in towns, it might be good to get uh, citizens' committees together or talk with the mayor or the local political leaders or traditional leaders mm-hmm. to ask the stores in the towns to try and supply as much organic food as possible. Mm-hmm. If you're getting tinned kai-kai, it's better to get organically raised uh, uh or any other kind of food, mm-hmm. food that's been raised with no sprays, no pesticides, no mm-hmm. poison spray,
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, stuff like that, and that's something that even people any, anywhere can do. Okay, don't, don't, don't use that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also, I think all peoples in the Pacific, like uh, Vanuatu, sh- uh, should join the Slow Food movement, huh? right. which began, I think, about. 12 years ago
2: mm-hmm.
1: in Italy and Ralph uh, Reganvanu led the Vanuatu delegation to that first mm-hmm. uh, slow food uh, meeting in Italy in
2: 2008.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, he and a number of very influential people in Vanuatu have uh, kept this question of uh, food health very close mm-hmm.
2: uh, uh,
1: in, their, in, their, in their development
2: mm-hmm. in a lot
1: of things and uh, the Culture Center is promoting Promoting this and uh, joel simo 's group in the uh, within the culture center is uh, uh, they have people going around the islands uh, and organizing they're organizing mm. food festivals like uh, mm. there 's a Tupunish slow food festival two thousand and sixteen down on tanna mm. uh, and, and all sorts of things it 's really good mm. and there 's people like Nume Numalin Mahana down in tanna who 've been mm. speaking about the importance of this sort of stuff for, for years
2: mm.
1: for years and it 's really good there 's so much such a diversity mm. of really good uh, different types of traditional foods that's already there mm. <laughs> and it's almost free you know right, right. Uh, and 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 also this this also heck if you go out to the in the traditional cultures there's another side to traditional food mm. that is there's a spiritual side to it right, as well right. like for example on tana there's a sacred mountain i won't say where Mm. All right, but uh, anyway it's to do with custom people
2: mm.
1: it's to do, there is a sacred mountain that spiritually is the, is the source or the origin of all food mm. and at the beginning of time
2: mm-hmm.
1: people from that, from, uh, were sent out from that mountain that mountain stores inside it
2: mm-hmm.
1: the source of power mm-hmm. to generate and grow food mm-hmm. all the different types of food Yam, taro, manioc, whatever, sugarcane, whatever. Mm. Uh, uh, and at the beginning of, of time, representatives were sent out from Tanna. I'm talking from the point of view of their custom. Mm-hmm. Thing. I'm, I'm mm-hmm. not going to specify where this thing is or whatever, because it's, mm. it's, this is their custom. So mm-hmm. I'll just say that there is this thing, and people were sent out from that island to spread food around the world.
2: Mm.
1: To spread food around the world. And then to come, and then they were all to come back and then help spread food uh, uh, around Tana Mm
2: -hmm. and things.
1: Because originally at one level, in some of the one version of some early custom stories from Tana, food was originally like humans, Uh and it could walk and it could talk. Mm -hmm. And then food changed to wood and then changed to stone. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the stone, which the stone became the source of power for the different types of food. Mm-hmm. And there are these traditional specialists on Tana
2: mm-hmm. who can
1: use these stones to activate the power of food,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and that still goes on right. and you've got these incredible food for traditional food festivals on Tana when you've got an excess of food like these mm-hmm. big things are called Niel or nieri. Mm-hmm. they're not they're not like the uh, well, you know everybody knows about the toka on Tana right. or nikoia, which is right. the proper term of the whole, and the toka is one dance a series of dances within the Nikuya. Well, there's another whole series of was on Tana called Niel or Nieri, mm. where they build these giant towers of food or giant things mm. in the shape of a boat, of, mm. you know, tens of thousands mm. of yams or tens of thousands of taro or bananas mm. or whatever. Mm. And this really ancient tradition, uh, that they used to have them in other parts of the world, uh, mm. uh, of Vanuatu. Of on they Mango, they'd have these giant towers called Nevsem, mm. these towers that were sometimes... Uh, uh, 30, 30 meters or 50 meters high
2: mm. and be
1: layered with stacks and stacks and stacks and stacks of yams and things like that at the times of these ritual festivals. Mm. Uh, and so there was, there was a ritual or a spiritual need to produce mm. these foods for these mm. rituals. And the rituals had a purpose in ensuring the quality of the food because you had these ritual specialists mm. who were working in the gardens to ensure that the foods that were grown were of the highest quality not just to feed the living but to feed the spirits
0: um okay yeah and the ancestors mm. yeah it almost yeah. sounds but they, like uh, um,
1: that, some, that that mm. that mountain that the, the mm. source of food
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh is still there on tanner mm. and uh yeah it has the inside it According to the the culture
2: mm-hmm.
1: that uh, works with that system,
2: mm-hmm. that's
1: still the source of the power of food there.
2: Right. And so
1: long as you can respect that, you can get good quality food.
2: Yeah. But if
1: you don't respect the traditions, mm-hmm. then your your yams won't grow well, your taro won't grow mm-hmm. well, etc., etc., etc. So oh. We better talk about sugar as well. Sorry, you go ahead yes. with some questions um, by, by you, we talk about sugar behind you. Yeah,
0: there. so the question you had mentioned, just to touch on the respect, and I think that I'm thinking in my head here like how when you have the food in front of you, well, if I have, uh, for instance, I have island cabbage on my plate, and I have taro from where my dad is from, which I absolutely love, and I have a piece of... Maybe tiny piece of meat. You know, I'm thinking, okay, here I am in the village, right? There is, there is that respect of, you know, exactly where the food comes from. And you know that, okay, grandma planted this, or grandpa planted this, or the whole village came because there was a time to plant on certain land before you can start harvesting or, you know, burning the bush for gardening. So on your plate, you have this almost like a relationship of um, what the product of the of the production of growing, of harvesting, of, of people coming together, and there is such a respect in that sense where you're sitting on the plate before you eat. But then on the other side, on the other hand, you know, you could have a big pile of rice or noodles and some other food that goes in it plus a thing of chips or whatever it is, you don't have that much sense of uh, as long as you're just wanting to eat because it looks good and it's going to taste good. So there's just two different relationships that you have. And I, I and I think that one of the concepts that uh, someone in the Pacific Islands or could, or even a person could sit down and look at those two and says, which of these two do I have a um, intrinsic relationship or some sort of form of Connection with that allows me to uh, to have a more in-depth understanding of it, rather than just eating for the sake of I'm hungry and I just want to fill my stomach, without understanding the mm-hmm. repercussion of what's going to happen later on. Yeah. yeah. So that's yeah. kind of just what I'm thinking. So go ahead, so let's let's talk about sugar.
1: Yeah, but you're mm. right. Yeah, yeah. Respect. Even there should even be respect with food. Huh? Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kai, Kai, now to him, he got. Uh, he got the respect inside of him, proper kai. kai. right
0: but rice
1: and tin noodles and stuff I you no know, got the respect, not not respect. Inside of
0: him. I mean, <laughs> just like kava, you know i mean you th- you look at this you know people with their bowl of cover and it's almost like <laughs> you know there's so much respect to that, and i I'm, I'm thinking, why <laughs> can't you just take the same concept to your food How yes
1: yes
0: it? exactly
1: mm-hmm. exactly, yeah yeah, 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 and let's talk about sugar, yeah mm-hmm. yeah okay, look um. One of the things that suddenly really got me talking about how dangerous sugar is mm. was is a thing that happened in, um, nearly nearly thirty years ago. Mm. Uh, i had been doing some work down in Colombia. No work, I mean, i had been an anthropologist. And never really sort of actually work. It's sort of a, sort of a mission. <laughs> uh, it was early. Ni- it was 1992, and I'd been down. I'd spent some time with a really, really. Fascinating mountain tribe that had been hiding mm-hmm. for 400 years
2: mm-hmm.
1: in a mountain in northern Columbia, uh, um, and I spent some time with amazing culture. I mean, really, really interesting people.
2: Mm-hmm. And I come
1: back down from the mountain after spending some time in their area. Luckily, I found an interpreter who was able to enable me to communicate with them. Mm-hmm. Um, but these are people who had hidden for 400 years from the outside world because they look upon us or the outside world as pollution, mm-hmm. and <laughs> they're right. Anyway, I came down, and then I was asked, I was asked to give some lectures at the uh, Universidad Ivariana in Bogotá in the capital, Smith, some lectures on anthropology, and I was doing that. And then I got a call from the Departamento de Asuntos Indígenas, the Department of Indigenous Affairs, saying, could I come and help them out with something? Mm-hmm. So I went over and they said, uh, look, we've had some problems with, um, there's a new tribe that's been discovered, uh, in the in a jungle area hmm. in southeastern Colombia, uh, only about 500, 480 kilometers southeast of Bogota, there was a, uh, a uh, supposedly uninhabited jungle area, hmm. uh, and permission had been given by the Colombian government to a Texas oil company to explore for oil in the region and hmm. stuff like that. Hmm. And the Texas oil company had come in, and they'd finally just, dis- they'd suddenly come across this, a group in the jungle of. Very very small people, Mm. completely naked. So naked that they even pulled out all their eyelashes and uh, uh, sorry, uh, eyebrows and Mm. head Mm. hair and everything else. Uh, And well, the women just wore a very thin cord around the waist,
2: Mm. and the
1: men wore Mm. a little banana leaf skirt, but just cover only cover them backside, no more. Mm. Really interesting tribe. They were forest nomads. They called Mm. the Nukak Maku. and nobody knew they existed. Nobody outside their area knew they existed. They didn't know they hadn't been discovered. <laughs> mm. And suddenly, they, you know... Anyway, they'd been discovered, I think, the year beforehand. But there'd been some problems. Within a year, uh, 90% of the people contacted over the age of about 40 had already died of the common cold and stuff because they had no resistance to the common cold. But the problem that the Department of Indigenous Affairs had asked me to come in and help with was a situation where uh, uh, a dozen or so of the women from the tribe
2: hmm. had
1: become addicted to sugar because oh. uh, they'd, they'd never had access to sugar before. But there was a dozen or so of the young, unmarried women from this tribe had become addicted to sugar,
2: hmm.
1: and they had been shifted. They'd shifted to a, a, a sort of a settler's settlement on the edge of their territory, where there was a lot of cowboys and stuff. And they were selling themselves off to all the cowboys
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, in exchange for sugar-coated biscuits and a, a very, very sweet fizzy drink called uh, Pasta Bon, which is very popular in Colombia. Mm-hmm. They became, These girls had become addicted to sugar.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so they'd become prostitutes for sugar mm-hmm. in exchange for sugar, you know. Um, and... So they were asking my advice. I don't know why the Department of Indigenous Affairs asked my advice on this, but uh, anyway, I knew a lot of people and I knew a lot of languages, so
2: uh,
1: Mm. it helped out. So what we did, we got, we sent shortwave radio messages down to the settlements on the edge of the the jungle there,
2: Mm. saying,
1: look, you can't treat the women like this. Mm. You have to stop it. We got to send in. We ended up organizing a military patrol with medical military doctors to go in, Mm-hmm. to take the women clean them up I think they all already had uh, gonorrhea or syphilis by then to get mm-hmm. them cleaned up and then sent back to the uh, to their uh, jungle territory mm-hmm. uh, uh, that was but the thing is these women have become addicted to sugar and it's actually happened before sugar for refined sugar for cultures that have had no access to it beforehand is as addictive as crack cocaine
2: mm-hmm. and it
1: light up same pathways the neural pathways in the brain
2: mm.
1: as cocaine things like that
2: wow. uh,
1: and you've got the same situation with australian aborigines uh when um, in um 1984 there's been a couple of or several instances of of uh recent instances of uh, remote in inverted commas, nomadic groups being brought in from the western deserts mm-hmm. uh, First time, Uh, there was a situation in I think 1964, and then again in 1984. One was a uh, a group of nine from the Pintubi tribe, Mm and uh, uh, sorry, and in 1984 was I think there was a subgroup of the Pitjantjatjara tribe. who'd been living normal traditional lives out in the desert Mm -hmm. on very sparse diet. I mean, one of the groups was nicknamed the Lizard Eaters because there wasn't too much food around. Mm -hmm. Um, But uh, the 1964 group that was brought in, they had no idea that there was an island called Australia or anything like that. They had no idea about white people or anything like that, although they had stories about a type of evil spirit with a red skin, Mm -hmm. (laughs) who Mm -hmm. ate people. Mm-hmm. You know, so there was obviously mm-hmm. stories going around the western deserts about certain incidences that happened in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, what had happened was they'd been brought in. Uh, the medical reports, I think this was, this was 1964, I think. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, the medical reports, when they were studied, was the medical officers said, they're the healthiest people I've ever studied in Australia. He said, absolutely perfect teeth, the heartbeat is prime. they there's not a single ounce of extra fat on their bodies, mm-hmm. everything's absolutely fine, they mm. all have intestinal worms wow. in their stomachs, but it doesn't seem to be doing them any harm. Mm. Uh, you know, but he said they're the healthiest people I've seen in Australia. Mm. Um, but within a a decade, out of that group of nine people, mm. I think uh, four had died of diabetes, heart attacks, high cholesterol, sugar, uh, etc. Uh, four were others were still alive, uh, mm-hmm. all with diabetes type 2, mm-hmm. uh, uh, and one, the smart one of the group, who, who couldn't stand living uh, at the mission station or whatever it was and gone back into the desert.
2: Mm-hmm. And he
1: was still th- thought to be walking around there in the desert living a, living a normal but rather solitary life. Huh? Mm-hmm. Um, but what it is... <clears throat> What we found is they uh, they became addicted to sugar and white bread, and mm-hmm. they couldn't leave the mission station where they were because they became addicted to the sugar. And one of the other Aborigines, I think in the second case in the 80s, uh, the Pichinjara tribe,
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, uh, they had some relatives out in the desert.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: That uh, There were some Pichinjara in the mission station on the edge of the desert, uh, and they had they knew that there were some relatives of theirs out in the desert that needed to be brought in, brought in mm. <clears throat> uh and they thought you know to improve their lives and one of the aborigines actually said to the patrol officers uh bring them in and give them sugar and white bread and they won't be able to leave mm. yeah yeah because it is for, for 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 groups like that who've never had access to refined sugar beforehand Wow. Uh, it, it is an addictive drug. And it's very, very, unfortunately, sugar, I mean, it's very sweet. And if it's, it's, it's okay if it's used in small quantities, um, but even so, the spread of sugar around the world, I mean, there was the, this scientist called um, uh, Western uh, Price, who in the 1920s and 1930s started doing studies around the world of what happened to indigenous cultures when sugar was introduced into their diets. And he went mm-hmm. around he and his wife went around the world for about 20 years looking at cultures and taking photographs of people from tribal areas or traditional areas who'd grown up before sugar was introduced into their diets, mm-hmm. and then photographs and dental measurements of those who were brought up after sugar was introduced to their diets. And you notice that there's a very rapid change in even the, the form of the dental arch. The dental arch becomes narrower, People who were born before sugar arrived uh, had very broad broad teeth, very broad dental arches,
2: mm. very healthy.
1: Those born afterwards, the dental arch becomes much narrower and the teeth go That's interesting. more crowded. There may be other reasons for that as well,
2: mm. but uh,
1: the introduction of sugar definitely doesn't help. <laughs>
2: yeah, so, yeah.
1: Uh, yeah, so sugar consumption needs to be kept at, uh, at a min- minimum. minimum.
0: hmm you know. mm. Yeah, so I there there is a study that is conducted by the Federal States of Micronesia. I can't remember exactly where it was conducted, but by Dr. Louis Enberger and his colleague has shown that many Pacific Island plants' um, food have actually outstanding healthy giving properties compared to the imported rice, noodles, biscuits, bread, and sugar. So um, it is obviously that... We, in the Pacific, there's more abundant, you know, food and colorful plant. And um, the imported foods are, that are <clears throat> being widely consumed have done a lot of um, health um, problems to, to the people. So, again, you had mentioned about sugar being one of the really bad substance that has just kind of like taken off like crazy. Uh, and it seems yeah, to kind of yeah. slipped in in different products, too. You know, I mean, when we think of sugar, when somebody talks about sugar, you just think about the white grain. But, you know, yes. to to yeah. be exact, it's actually a substance that's used in almost all the products that we, we get, you know, yes. from yes. store bought yes. products.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah, no, it's really scary. I mean, almost mm-hmm. all the tin products... And almost mm-hmm. any of the products that you get in a store have got sugar. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're right. We've got sugar yeah. added to them. Huh?
0: Yeah. yeah. Um And, ha- and it's becoming um, a very uh, problem- problematic issues, and obviously, which is why, you know, <clears throat> we have a high rate of all, all the diseases that we're getting throughout the Pacific. And so, um, yeah, something that we need to continue to talk about. Something that we need to think about because. Food um uh, to us like you said it's uh something that connects us not just you know the the, the fielders or tommy, but it's uh, basically who we are you know what you you are what you eat so if you think about it from the natural logic uh concept 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 of being a Pacific islander or a Melanesian micronesia you you know we are if you look around our surroundings we have beautiful colorful um, food that we eat uh, we should be eating instead of eating something that we're not and so here we are being given these beautiful islands and we're walking around being completely different people because of the things that we're putting in our body that uh, are not necessarily what's growing around us so um, yeah it's a yeah. bit yeah, it's really season. it's
1: really you know it's almost sort of like crazy in a way mm. here you've got so many fertile islands and particularly in the western pacific and stuff Mm. that can grow so much of their own really really good good food Mm. and yet the whole trend even the kind of development that's being pushed onto the islands they're saying
2: that Mm.
1: people would say okay what the developers are saying is okay you you grow food to sell or for export uh, and then buy your food from the store I mean, how, how how crazy is that?
0: <laughs> yeah, so I think that's that's one thing that we we need to be very careful because at the moment I think that that's um, because of what COVID has also kind of helped in some ways, you know, is that we we're, we're realizing that we need to produce uh, the eco tourism, you know, agricultural tourism and, and and produce all this grow more and more food uh, and then exporting it right now, but then there has to be a balance how, you know those are the things that we uh, as as we continue to do that we have to be very careful um of how much of that can be done that we're not doing it to over commercialize you know in a sense that we're yeah. killing ourselves
1: yeah. um, i think uh, i think uh groom i can family first time yes alice I musica
0: mean, salad yeah. yeah. or trade mm-hmm. him. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So there's there's definitely a lot to keep talking about this is food is something that we definitely yeah. won't be able to stop talking about it because it's part of our yeah, 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 yeah. everyday living yeah. but we yeah. you know have to be able to um, be smart Just yes.
1: just just to finish on a a rather a very different note mm-hmm. but possibly slightly, a slightly jovial one mm-hmm. Um I got a <laughs> I was just thinking about it last weekend because I was talking with uh, a friend from the Pacific and I've got a tape recording I did in 1973 up in the mountains in one of the northern islands. I won't say where and I won't say in what village and I won't say with whom and I was sitting down and talking with this this, uh, uh, chap. And we were talking about uh, cannibalism, because you also got to think about human meat as well. Mm. <laughs> and maybe mostly. maybe you might want to edit this out or not. <laughs> but any, anyway, uh, the thing is, uh, you know, there wasn't a mad rush. I mean, of course, all the early missionaries used to sort of, if you made the, read the early missionary reports, mm-hmm. you sort of tend to get the impression that all the Melanesians right. were all sort of grabbing people off the jungle path and eating them because of hunger and starvation or because they were... Uh, Crazed cannibals or something like that. Mm -hmm. No, it wasn't like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, But there were certain uh, certain cultures in Vanuatu where um, certain forms of cannibalism did exist, Mm -hmm. uh, like revenge cannibalism, Mm
2: -hmm. punishment
1: cannibalism, Mm -hmm. uh, etc., etc., etc. You didn't eat people if you were starving or anything like that. There was, you know, that was not the thing that was on. Um, But there was, there was. A, string, a small number of cultures where cannibalism was, could be how can I, I could say, a bit of an art to a certain extent mm-hmm. and I was speaking in 1973 this not nearly 50 years ago mm-hmm. with one of the people who was involved in that and I can remember in the tape recording he was he's, uh, he's, uh, telling me he said, we were talking about human meat and he said uh, when you cook human meat he said, uh, man yellow way yellow oh, uh, human fat is very yellow <laughs> it's when it's cooked uh, they
2: meet the belong
1: man, he beats them all, of of kind meat. Oh,
2: good
1: <laughs> And as he said, as he said that, as he said that, he grabbed my arm, <laughs> you know, and in the tape recording you could hear the microphone shaking and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, we were recording I mean, in the men's hut. and There was all these uh, skulls of oh, respected yeah. ancestors in the men's hut and things like that, mm-hmm. you know, but, uh, yes, people say it was very sweet. Um, Hmm. Uh, tastes just like pig Um, but uh, anyway uh, uh, that's to end the program on a slightly different thing but but the thing is if you you speak with missionaries they'll think that that's that's what the Pacific was like it wasn't like Mm -hmm. that that's just an isolated example from one Mm. particular
2: Mm.
1: uh, 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 culture
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Um, but these sorts of things these sorts of things still hang around I can remember Mm. a situation in 1975 in Mm in the New Hebrides, when uh, rumors were going around that Marling Tinned Pork was Tinned Chinaman. Ah,
0: uh, yes, you know? yes. Yeah, really, everybody yes. goes,
1: oh, only suck them all tin, yeah, Marling, you go, only suck them all, so water or something, I'll like say, but he got one store, I won't say where, that sold out almost immediately. <laughs> 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 no,
0: I would, oh, you
2: know? anyway,
0: anyway. Yeah. uh, uh, oh, uh yes. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for coming to the mat and having this wonderful discussion about the food and we will continue to have a discussion about food because it's one of the basic necessity of life. But at the same time, we got to be smart about, you know, being more educated about our food that we grow and, you know, what's right there and obviously eating what our grandmother would be eating and not what she wouldn't be eating. Um, you know at the same time in the next episode hopefully with Kirk we will be doing a cover podcast. Uh, so for those who are interested to learn more about cover, you all know Vanuatu is kind of the prime place for all the different species of cover and learn more about the history with uh, Mr Kirk Huffman. So thank you so much again for you comeno de Nivela.
1: Mary. Yes, I'll mm. drink to that, to the next program. <laughs> um, oh, but with the, the last thing about food, mm. um, there's just been an announcement. The director of the Culture Center, Richard Ching, just announced that the next Melanesian Arts Festival will oh. be held in Vila next July. Uh-huh. And the Culture Center is the organizing coordinator for that.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And he said that one of the major themes will be custom kaikai. Kai. Oh,
0: there you go. Yeah. Well, we we'll so look that's forward a, to that.
1: Yeah, it's a really mm-hmm. good thing to promote.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, good,
1: mm-hmm. good for, good for all of them. Yes. So there's some really important people in Vanuatu who've, who've been promoting this custom Kaikai kai thing for mm-hmm. a number of years. So congratulations to them. Mm-hmm. And so the next year's Melanesian Arts Festival will have that. That mm-hmm. will be the special theme mm-hmm. of yes. the next Melanesian Arts Festival yeah. to be held in Vanuatu.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Okay. good no more, Mary Tabiana. Thank mm-hmm. you for giving me a chance to say a few words here. Mm-hmm. And and best you. wishes to you all.
0: Thank De you
1: so much. Tata.
0: Tata. This podcast is created and produced by Melanesian Women Today, a non-profit organization. Please visit our website at www.melanesianwomentoday.org. That is all one word. Melanesian Women Today envisions a Pacific region where every woman, girl, and child in their respective communities in Melanesia lives a productive, healthy, and fulfilling life. We are on a mission to improve the well-being and quality of lives and also to promote and improve leadership in women and girls in their communities. Please consider making a donation today on our website to support our work. Thank you for your support.